Welcome back, everybody, to the Lacrosse Thinker podcast. So today we have the guest Richard McLaughlin to talk, to,、uh, who is teaching now at Gateway Technology,、uh, Tec- Technical College, and、uh, about natural science. And today our topic of the research will be、uh, two things. The first one will be the bacteria diversities in fecal materials of animals. So basically, bacteria in animals. And then another one will talk a lot about the mammals and how to protect them,、uh, especially in Chinese Yangtze River. Okay, so、uh, let's start with how did you get into biology from the beginning? Biology, I've always been、uh, very interested in biology ever since I was、uh, a teenager and、uh, wanted to go to medical school. Then I、uh, went to undergraduate and I took a microbiology course with、uh, Professor Dr. Wool. I really liked the、uh, the course and I did a research project with、uh, Dr. Wool and I said. This is this is very interesting. What, did, what research did you do there? I did、um, just some basic E. coli research and trying to use a technique called electroporation to get plasmids into the E. coli bacteria. So it was a fun undergraduate project, and I said, "Well, this this is good. I I, I think I'm going to change." So what I did was I applied to graduate school. So I'm Canadian. So I applied to Queen's University. It's in a small city in Ontario called Kingston, and I worked with corkscrew-shaped bacteria called spirochetes. And at that time, they were creating a physical map. So what you would do is you would isolate the DNA from the bacteria, and you would cut it with enzymes called restriction enzymes. Restriction enzymes cut DNA, and then you would use a pulse field gel electrophoresis, separate out the fragments. Size the genome. It was an okay technique. Now that technique has been completely replaced with、uh, genome sequencing and is uh, uh, used used very very little. So after finishing a master's degree, I went to McGill University, which is in Montreal, Canada, and worked with、uh, Professor Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan studied oral anaerobic spirochetes, and he studied.、Um, Treponema denticola. He was actually the first person to discover the bacterium and、uh, publish a paper. And he looked at how the particular bacterium causes、uh, periodontal or gum disease. So we grew the bacteria, studied the bacteria, uh, uh, produced some some papers on uh, that. And uh, afterwards, I worked uh, for uh, a company in Montreal,、uh, Neurochem. And we looked at、um, this is different than microbiology. We looked at amyloid. So amyloid is、uh, a protein that aggregates in brains, especially in、uh, people with Alzheimer's disease. And we were trying to come up with、uh, a small molecule, a medication to prevent the aggregation of the amyloid, and as a possible treatment for、uh, Alzheimer's disease. That's where your patient come from, right? Then the. I, I saw you have a patent. Yes, I have for a, treating aggregation disorders. That's、uh, where the patent came from. Yes, so it was、uh, a different protein than the A beta. It's the、uh, the alpha synuclein for treating Parkinson's disease. So another、uh, scientist and I came up with、uh, that idea with、uh, aggregation. I see. Are people using those kind of treatments now? Unfortunately,、uh, unfortunately, that patent expired. They did not renew it, and we tried a small molecule in clinical trials, and it was not successful. So、uh, this, the company took a different direction from the aggregation、uh, 
disorder. So unfortunately, it did not become a medication on the shelf. Still a nice try. Yeah, yeah it was a try. In uh, clinical trials, approximately 1 in 20 medications that are tried become a medicine. So it's, it's, it's difficult. Interesting, because I recently read a lot about Asham's and... Uh, Seems like when we get older and older, because people's lifespan becomes so much bigger now, that can become a very a major cause of a major disease older people have after they become like 60, 70, because people are just living longer in general now. That's right. Yep. Number yeah. one cause of uh, dementia, and uh, there's treatments, but still not where scientists would like them to be. Cool. So, um, let's first talk about your studies of bacteria in animals. You have a lot of publications on that. So, can you give us some interesting uh, fundings or research you have done before? Yeah, my lab, so when I'm at uh, Gateway Technical, I work with undergraduate students. And if you look in the literature, you're going to, with, with bacteria, find two major areas. Humans, so a lot is disease-causing with humans. And the other, if you look at animals, is some commercial application, uh, so say cattle or swine, uh, goats, horses, because there is, uh, there's commercial applications. Very little is done with the microbiota, the bacteria, or other microorganisms associated with non-feed animals, non-commercial animals. So that's something that I'm interested in doing. So I've worked with... Uh, um, Phil, uh, Phil Cochran, he was the chair of biology at St. Mary's University on the timber rattlesnake. So he would uh, give me some, uh, this particular snake, unfortunately got uh, run over by a lawnmower. We looked at the microbiota of the, uh, of the snake and we uh, published a paper on that. We, um, we also found in that uh, particular sample a new species of bacteria. So a lot of people think that we've discovered every single species of bacteria. Well, that unfortunately is, is not the case. Most bacteria from an ecosystem, so fecal material or a lake or a pond, cannot be cultivated in artificial media, so in growth media. So what we use in uh, microbiology is we use a lot of different augers, and I like to use blood auger, and the bacteria for a variety of reasons, does not grow. So before we had our uh, techniques of gene sequencing like what we could, they were, they were completely unknown to science. So uh, I was able to take and to uh, cultivate this uh, species of bacteria. It's called an enterococcus. It's uh, not a disease-causing species. And I worked with the uh, CDC, even though it wasn't disease-causing, I still worked with the CDC, and they were really great. And they uh, helped to characterize that and uh, published uh, new species of uh, bacteria uh, a few years ago. So most bacteria are unable at this point to be cultivated, and almost every day scientists are finding um, new species of uh, bacteria. So just this semester... I worked with a student. We were uh, published a paper on the painted turtle, the the bacteria associated, and the, the, we we were the first group to do this. Nobody has looked at the painted turtle. When I got my um, the reviewer comments back in the discussion, the reviewer said, "Well, you need to put this more in line with other research with turtles." And I my reply was, 
there is another research with turtles. It's sea turtles, but this 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 is why I I have to go with the discussion. And so the student and I um, we we found another new species of bacteria called a Clostridium bacterium. So we're uh, working with uh, another scientist and uh, trying to publish to publish that uh, in China. I uh, work with the Yanzi finless porpoise. And before I uh, started with uh, this group, this a, r a really great group, there was nothing known about the microbiota. They, they didn't look at bacteria. They looked at uh, reproductive status. They looked at uh, mitochondrial DNA and uh, population genetics, lots of great things. So the, the first thing that we found is that one of the, a couple of the Yanzi finless porpoises had helicobacter. So helicobacter pylori can cause gastric ulcers in humans. Well, this was a different species of uh, helicobacter and it could cause ulcers in, uh, in porpoises. So that's something that uh, animals can be affected, the same as humans can be affected by uh, disease-causing microorganisms. So it seems to me there is a wild area of research just adding, keep adding more bacteria from animals to a dictionary. So, so as your dictionary becomes bigger and bigger and bigger with the new technology, What's after that? Like a lot of people will say, well, that's interesting. We got new bacteria. Probably you receive this question a lot, right? And after that, what's, where's the application? Why do we care? Well, it, part, part of it is, is this. If you look in the literature, you look at a lot of disease-causing organisms. Okay, that, that's good. about animal disease? or Animal, animal disease, both. human disease, right, right across the board. Okay, Th that's good. But what about the the non-disease-causing organisms. Uh, how do you, when, when you want to uh, compare why does one organism cause disease, okay, well, let's look at organisms that don't. So you can have more in the literature to take and to, uh, to compare to. Another thing that's... Is it like a control group? A control group, yeah. You're so creating a control group for it, yeah. You're, you're, you're creating a, a control group because most bacteria, it's less than 1%, cause disease. So you can take and you can uh, see, okay, what, why, why do the bacteria cause disease as a control group? Also, microorganisms are very beneficial. So you can look, and there's been numerous, numerous studies in humans, the Human um, Microbiome Project, at different bacteria at different sites, and so many papers on the benefits of the microbiota. So how does bacteria benefit humans? How does it play a role that we didn't know before in disease? So that gives you an avenue of treatment. Also with animals, we care a lot about the health of animals, and sometimes there is transmission of microorganisms from animals to humans. Now that can be true in industries, but also uh, that can be true in, uh, in the wild. So an, an interesting thing that we found uh, a little bit over a year ago is we were looking at the bacteria in giraffes. So we, we published that. And uh, there's a class of antibiotics called carbopinums. And they are a very potent class. and uh, we found a bacterial species in the fecal material of a giraffe that was resistant to this group of antibiotics. So 
why would it be there? You wouldn't expect it to be there because even though these were housed at the Jacksonville Zoo, they they didn't get fed any antibiotics. So there's that whole component of uh, transmission now of it's called a plasmid. Now it's not the only way, but these small circular pieces of DNA can transmit genes which make proteins which allow bacteria to become antibiotic resistant. So you can find some very interesting things that uh, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't have uh, expected. So basically you're actually, if I imagine this, it's almost like going to a museum or a library with endless possibilities and just go there and every day you just find new stuff like some structures you've never seen before, some properties you've never seen before and based on that you can make it to be like a disease uh, to, to think about potential threats to disease or antibiotics, or you can think about productions such like the way we use microbiology. So that That's right, yeah. And then what, what's really nice about working at the technical college is I enjoy publishing, and I, I, I have the freedom to work on whatever I want. And I like to work on animals that people are not interested in working on, so uh, such things as, as turtles. Not a lot of research goes into the microbiome of a turtle or a snake. Uh, so you can, you can look at that, you can find interesting things like antibiotic-resistant bacteria, new species of bacteria, characterize the microbiome, and compare it to, uh, to other animals. So it's really, it's a wide open field. Interesting. So uh, let's go back to your research method. Are they, do you have actually a very standard or like a well-defined procedure? How, how do you start with a species and start to ha say, hey, how do I find some bacteria from it? And how can students actually participate in this? What I do is I get the, the fecal material and I send the uh, material to uh, a company called Mr. DNA. And Mr. DNA will take and amplify, this, this is called next generation sequencing, the 16S for bacteria. Now, if you're looking at fungi or other organisms, it's another gene, but it's a similar idea. And he will um, uh, send me back those sequences and the identity to what's called the phylum level of the different bacterial species which are there. So I do that, I send that uh, out to a company because I don't, don't have the equipment to do it uh, in-house. Now in terms of growing the bacteria, really you can be very creative. What I like to do is I like to use a blood auger because there it's an enriched media. So you can streak uh, bacteria, just add the bacteria from the fecal material with uh, a loop. So people can think of it like a pencil with uh, a metal wire. You heat the metal wire, you get some of the fecal material, and just add it to an auger like jello plate. And you can take and you can grow it in the presence of oxygen. So that would be aerobic or in the absence of oxygen. So not every living organism requires oxygen. In fact, to some bacterial species, oxygen is toxic. It is poisonous. So in the fecal material, it's going to have a lot of bacteria that can grow well in the absence of oxygen. So you can just add that to a blood auger plate and see what grows. You can purchase selective media. So we purchased uh, selective media to grow a species of bacteria called Bacteroides just to see what was there and we found some just interesting bacterial species. Bacteria that are in the clostridiums 
as well as other species, form these structures called endospores. Endospores are these dormant, resistant structures. So if you take like the cold, well, it's very hard for organisms to survive in cold like this. Not impossible, but hard. So bacteria which form endospores can survive in the cold. People think boiling water. Well, you boil the water, your kettle, it, the water's sterile. No, not necessarily. Endospores can survive the boiling of water. So what I do with my lab is take some of the fecal material, and the student and I, we put it in 70% ethanol. And you just, just uh, tilt the tube, let it go for about a half an hour. The bacterial cells will be killed by the alcohol. Alcohol, 70%, kills bacteria, but it doesn't kill the endospores. So then what you do is you just take some of the, uh, the liquid, you add it to a, a blood auger plate, you can incubate it aerobically, anaerobically, and you take and you uh, pure culture it. So you isolate the different bacterial species, and I take the plates and I send them to a company called GeneWiz. What bacteria I have, I honestly don't know. That's the fun of it. You, you, you don't know what you've got. So I just, just send it, and um, it comes back with this uh, sequence. The DNA alphabet is four letters, A, T, C, G. So about 1,400 A's and T's and C's and G's. You get that, and you submit that to a government database called the BLAST database. Completely free, and within a couple of minutes, it matches your sequence to known sequences in the database so you can take and identify your bacteria. So that's the, the protocols that uh, I generally use. And sometimes if it's an interesting bacteria, you can uh, sequence what's called the genome. So the DNA in that organism can be, I send the bacteria again to Mr. DNA, and Mr. DNA uh, sends me back little little fragments. So it's like a big jigsaw puzzle. And you can take those little fragments, and, and there's uh, at Argonne National Laboratory, there's a database called, the Pat, called Patrick. And you submit those little three, four hundred, what, what are called base pairs, sequences, and you look for the overlap. So there are computers, so they have, uh, they have a, a server room, which would be about the size of well, probably pretty close. You know, the, the, the basement's water-cooled, and the top has got servers, so probably pretty close to the size of wing, just with servers. And within a, a day or so, They'll send you back your, um, your assembled genome. You know the different genes. You can uh, identify the bacteria a little bit better than just based on, a, on a, a gene sequence. So we did that, and that's how we were able to show that one of our species was a novel Clostridium species. And, and it's all free, too. It's completely free. Interesting. So after you actually discover something new, do you actually add your new bacteria into the database? Yes. They need to be evaluated, certificated by certain facilities or anything to make sure? What we do is we take that, we sequence the genome, but you at least need the 16S rRNA gene. So whatever genes that you sequence, you send it to the, um, the NCBI, it's a government database, and they give you an accession number. Mm -hmm. So these accession numbers uh, are included in your manuscript, so other scientists can use your data. You also have to take the bacteria 
and send it to a culture collection. So the uh, American Type Culture Collection is an example. So a certificate is sent from the culture collection. So they will, culture collection will take your bacteria. They will sequence the 16S just to make sure it's what you said it was. And then they will make it commercially available so that other scientists can purchase your bacteria. So that's what you have to make available. And then what you have to do for a paper is you have to prove it's a new species of bacteria. So you need to do certain biochemical tests. What are the nutrients the bacteria uses, like different sugars, lactose, sucrose, glucose. Uh, you can look at the, uh, the, the fatty acids. You can look at um, the gases which the bacteria produces. But you have to show that your bacterium is new. So you do all these tests, comparing it to closely related species. And uh, that goes for review. Then the, um, there's naming. So your name has to be approved. So uh, the, first, uh, the first name that I give with the Enterococcus, I called it Enterococcus horridus because it was from a, a, a timber rattlesnake, Crotalus horridus. So I want it sounding really horrible, Crotalus. <laughs> and, and the journal said, no, it's not horrible. We're changing the name. So, so the, the naming convention also has to be, it has to be properly Latinized, uh, etc. So you can't just you can't just name it after yourself. You have to have the proper uh, proper naming. So you probably have some rule to follow. They're gonna send you. They do. I, I actually sent it to. Um, uh, we're looking for a name, and we uh, sent it to a professor, uh, and uh, he he came up with a name. One of them didn't really like my name. Said, "No, I don't like it. Let's use it." Okay, fine. We'll we'll, we'll use this name. So it's it really is. Uh, I like doing it, but it's a lot of work to actually prove your case that this is a new species of, uh, of bacteria. It sounds great because you basically have a very well-defined process. You first do the first screening with the database and see how here's the potential. Now you grow it and try to measure the property and try to prove it. And you have a verification process. You have everything basically set, settled. So for me, it's almost like a like a factory, right? You, you, you have a business process defined. Now you just need to have the patient and you have a little bit of luck. That's right. <laughs> a little little yeah. luck. That's right. And yeah. th that's the nice thing about using animal samples is because um, they're very diverse. Nobody's looked at them. So um, uh, in animals which are plant eaters, it's been shown that the bacterial diversity is huge, much, much greater than animals that just eat meat. So I'll use any animal species, but something such as a giraffe, it's going to have a really diverse uh, population of bacteria, and there's just a lot to find if you're, uh, if you're looking in places where other people are not. That's actually where I want to ask next. How do you find a potential good sample to begin with? Like what kind of animals are you looking for, or how do you have this inspiration of what plant I want to collect? A lot of um, what I do is, is I like to work with animals from the wild. Now, I'm not opposed to zoo animals. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll work with that. Part of it is a collaboration. It, it's, it's just very difficult to, to get this. Uh, if I know a person who works at a zoo, I'll, I'll email that person. Could you, could you give me some samples? Sometimes I'll just... Um, just email somebody, and uh, that's how we got some blue whale samples. So we got a couple of blue whale samples from the Pacific Ocean. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering, there's a little zoo. No, no, no zoo there. <laughs> no zoo here. We, we uh, and um, 
Anna sent me uh, two blue whale samples. So we were the. F- if I could interrupt, how do they do that? Like, they go out on the boat and they can spot a blue whale, and then they use dip nets when they see the fecal material, uh-huh. and then they collect the the fecal material with the dip nets, <laughs> freeze it, and send it. <laughs> That's crazy because I, like they, these guys, they just poop in the. Yeah, the that's right. That's you go there and find th- that's right. <laughs> that's that's what they do. So so it's it's not so easy to to always um, always find this. And I worked with a uh, uh, person uh, from uh, um, UW System, uh, a Whitewater in uh, the turtles. So I just just he was interested in turtles. Emailed him. Will you you know when you when you're doing your study on uh, painted turtles. Could you collect some fecal samples for me? And they said yes. Uh, the right now I've got some uh, African wild dogs from a zoo, so I, I, I do a, just do a lot of work, just just looking for what's out there, um, and, and just trying to uh, trying trying to make a, a contact. Is it purely random? Like uh, I just to see I need to see whatever is available, or actually you kind of have a hinge like yeah, this kind of species is more likely. To happen and also what's the success rate if you complete this process for 10 times how big the chance you can discover something new well in terms of I, i'm willing to because there's so many animals that have not been characterized uh-huh. it's really a very wide open field so i'm i'm open to any uh, any type of uh, animal so uh, I, I don't really have a, a hunch which one's going to be, and, and I'll stay completely away from animals such as cattle and pigs and things like that because commercial, commercial because there's way too much competition that's been done. So I, I, I go with what hasn't been done. In terms of finding a new species, that's really a hit or miss. Uh, you, you just, I was trying to find a new Bacteroides species. I didn't find one. So maybe one out of ten you're gonna find it if you're lucky yeah it's a it's a hit or miss so uh there are labs which are really designed for that my lab isn't quite quite that so if i happen to find something that that's great interesting that's that's fascinating to see and especially in the process i also hear there's a national database about this which i never know of before so it seems like you have the right company doing the right thing so it's it's a very very sophisticated process with different industries involved so that's that's great so which part you, you usually involve the students I involve the students in um, taking the fecal material and isolating the bacteria so we will do that then they will send it to uh, GeneWiz get the sequence we blast that uh, if it's worthwhile we sequence the genome and they work with me on sending the data to uh, what's called Patrick at uh, Argonne and uh, then we just take and we collect our, our data. And uh, in terms of writing the manuscript, we spend uh, a lot of time working together, uh, writing uh, our manuscript with all of the data that has been collected. So what I do at Gateway is um, it's 15 week semester and you've got about 12 weeks to um, to do the research. So there's enough time, but not a lot of time. So uh, uh, mostly growing the bacteria, analyzing the data, and then in the writing of a manuscript. Good news is actually just growing the, ma- the bacteria may take some time. So Sometimes, time yeah. Spend on waiting, right? That's right. Sometimes you have to wait a week or more. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes, too, you just, uh, you know, all of the, the, uh, 
uh, sending and receiving of the data can take uh, can take some time too. Uh, we send our bacteria out for uh, antibiotic uh, resistance. Uh, um, there, there's uh, a laboratory, Marshfield Laboratory, which will do uh, isolates from animals, looking looking at that. So uh, over the years, just uh, a system, as you say, of different companies and different techniques, which seem to work quite well for the Gateway students. That's pretty nice, yeah. If I imagine I'm a student, I'm basically involved in everything the whole process and if I really put my effort into it I will be able to do this when I graduate right yeah absolutely level. and then that that's become future collaborations yeah, now you have more people doing this and eventually the library just grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and, and something interesting gotta ha- happen after that that's <laughs> right so, that's right actually a side topic which I didn't put in my question list uh, I talked with Scott Cooper in my second episode, and he was talking about sending some kind of bacteria, the fungus, fungus, mm-hmm. or to to Mars. Uh, have we discovered any bacteria which will actually survive the harsh environment in outer space? And maybe sending them there will benefit human in some way. I have not. What I look at are mostly bacteria which grow. Um, Regular, it, it, there's there's different domains, and Scott talked about that. In the domain bacteria, they grow at uh, body temperature, 37 degrees Celsius, oh, at yeah, a near, animals, yeah. yeah, a near neutral pH. The archaea would be something that you would find at hot springs in uh, in geysers, etc., which can survive. Uh, above the boiling point of water and undersea thermal vents. So that was a a completely different area of looking at uh, those organisms. So I look at the more moderate organisms, nothing that's going to survive any any super harsh conditions. Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about uh, your work on the Yangtze River poppers. And uh, how did you I know you pr- you're personally involved, not just your research. Your family actually got yeah. whole involved in this. You traveled to China. You actually got involved in a lot of not just research ac- activities, right? Like promoting to save or protect uh, the, the, the mammals. Um, how did you get started? I got started because my uh, wife's family knows the director, Dr. Wan Ding. And uh, he works with the Yanzi Finless Porpoise. So I go there during the summer. And I wanted something scientific to, to do. So I, I, my wife set me up with him, and they, they did a lot of great work, but nothing with the microbiota. And just to give you a little background uh, about the porpoise. So it started before the por- there, there was a, a white dolphin, the, the Baiji. And the institute originally started to save the Baiji, the white dolphin, which was part of endemic in the Yangtze River. However, that effort did not go well, and it's believed to be extinct. And it's, really? It's extinct. Well, I was training my, under, uh, my elementary school where we still put that in our textbook, but within 20 years, it's gone. It's gone. It's completely gone. Yeah, it's completely gone. So they did an expedition years ago looking for, you know, looked for months in the Yonsei River, and they found none. So it, it, is, it is extinct. So they said, okay, let's look at the Yonsei finless porpoise. So there, the Yonsei River, as, as you know, is a, a, the, the um, uh, very important in terms of transportation. There's just, and, and cargo, billions of tons of cargo 
every year factories with that that's really great for industry and fishing there are problems for the animals which are living there so there can be acoustic pollution the noise of motors motor strikes the the the, um, propeller hits the animal Uh, chemicals which are placed in the water Uh, fishing with gill nets can actually take so uh, a porpoise is a mammal so like us we have to breathe air well so does the porpoise so the porpoise can stay underwater longer than we can but eventually it has to come up for air if it's trapped in a gill net it drowns so these animals end up drowning so there is an oxbow lake called um, Tianajo, which in 1972 became uh, separate from the Yonsei River. So Professor Wan Ding said, there's a lot of problems right now with the Yonsei River. Why don't we take these porpoises and excite to conservation, remove them from the Yonsei River and put them in this oxbow lake? Not a lot of people liked his idea. They, they I can th- imagine that. Yeah, they, it was, it was and, and to be honest, he, he didn't really love his idea. But he said, well, let's look at the Yonsei River. The conditions are not great right now. Let's move them to better conditions and then work on fixing the conditions in the Yonsei River. This was the first example of excitu conservation of a cetacean species. It worked super, super well. If you look at pi- pictures of the Yonsei finless porpoise, at the there's a dolphinarium where I work. They look, you know, really lean. They're in good shape. They're in in the in the reserves. They're even in better shape. They're they're overweight in the, the reserves compared to because because we don't we don't overfeed them. So the success of the birth rate is really really good because there's a fish there. There's no pollution. There's no fishing. There's no anything to disturb them. Part of the problem is they've, you know, how many porpoises can you hold in uh, this hospital? Is, is this re- reserved uh, artificial? No, it's natural. Then do we worry about the balance at all? The equal balance? At this point... They're just aiming at one particular species, like, yeah, they can have a good life, but what about all the others back in the reserve? That, that's... That, that's I think at this point, what they're looking for in, in that artificial, uh, it, it's like 21 kilometers. So oh, okay. it's, it's not really huge. So, so it's big enough for the porpoises, but I think they're looking at, at these reserves, let's keep the porpoise population stable. Because right now, there's about 1,000 porpoises in the world. So it's considered critically extinct. So let's just keep that population stable and then think of ideas of what we can do to return porpoises to the Yonsei River, clean the, the river, so industries can function, um, people could fish or do other industries. So a sustainable plan. A sustainable plan for, for uh, the porpoises. So that has worked uh, really, really, uh, really well, what Wan Ding has done. He's done a lot of really great things. And this was done during the past or five it, it was uh, started in the 90s, the 90s in the 90s so it's uh, been for a number of years and it's um, w- one of the things that have is is happened is we've had success in the dolphinarium in 
both artificial breeding and just through natural means of porpoises um, having offspring. But what sometimes happens is the offspring dies. So it's not always 100%. So humans will give IV or antibiotics, and sometimes the porpoise uh, survives, sometimes it doesn't. But in the wild, it seems to be better because humans don't intervene. So it's a matter that uh, I was told by a scientist, the most important thing is mother-calf bonding because you need the milk. And scientists don't always know in the dolphinarium if that bonding is occurring until it's too late. But in the wild, there is no other choice. Humans are not going to intervene, so it seems to work, uh, it seems to work better uh, in the wild. But I will say, we had a successful birth of a porpoise. I was there in um, late May, June, and I was there for the one month. Uh, we had cake and celebration of the birth of the porpoise. He's doing great. And they had the 100th day celebration of the porpoise. So we had a baby porpoise, male porpoise, who born just this year, and he's doing great. Awesome. That, that's really awesome. So you started with this, and now can you tell me a little bit about uh, what you do there? Sure. What I do is um, I work um, with uh, Professor Jin Song Jun, and he is in charge of genetics. So he has graduate students, and I supervise the, um, the graduate students. So what I did with uh, one graduate student this year, uh, Lija, is uh, we, this isn't from the Yanzi finless porpoise, but this was from a whale. We found a bacterial species in the um, abscess of a whale, and we took and we characterized the bacteria associated with the, um, uh, that was present in the, in the whale. So I do a lot of work with the uh, graduate students there. Uh, I get the graduate students um, looking at the microbiota we looked at, we started with the Yanzi finless porpoise. So we looked at the fecal material of the Yanzi finless porpoise, and you can look at, um, at that at the dolphinarium and compare that to, to the wild. So we've done, uh, we've done work on... Uh, What's on the conclusion there, the difference? There, there are some, um, there are some differences, but if it's a, a nice, clean uh, environment, the similarities are are very, are are, are stable. So uh, we we just more or less we just took an inventory. We just want to see what's there, and then you can take and you can figure out well. What can we do after after we have an inventory? Do we see any uh, potentially disease-causing organisms which are present that we have to uh, worry about? So for some animals, there are vaccines. So brucella is a problem. So should we... Uh, vaccinate the animals? Should we uh, supplement their their diet with uh, um, maybe some type of uh, probiotic? Something like that. So we can think about that in uh, in future. So right now we're do, doing inventory, seeing what's there, comparing uh, differences, and then in future we can plan what uh, what we can do with the information that, uh, that we have. So in the big picture, you're helping the whole reservation from a certain perspective, but you work with, uh, but there will be other people working on all kinds of perspectives. You see, all kinds of perspectives. Yeah, the multi. What's the What's the scale of this project? Like the whole thing, like uh, put them in the reserve and then do what you need to do with Yangtze River and put them back. Do you have a timeline? 
I do not know of any timeline, but I'm not involved. You know, there, there, there are people who work with the Chinese government, both local and federal, about that. They would know much more the timeline. I, I'm not really aware of what the government, the government is very favorable towards this, what, what the different exact steps that are being done uh, are. The Chinese scientists, though, would know much more. But I, I know the government is very interested they're very uh, uh, favorable to this. I told the director of the institute, um, he laughed, but uh, I told him he should invite Xi Jinping to come and have a look at our, uh, have a look at our, what we do. And I think, uh, I was kidding, but I was also very serious, is that, that I, think, I think he would be very impressed at the fine work that these uh, scientists uh, um, have done. So the idea of, uh, Public awareness. That's something that I try to. Uh, that's something that I try to do. So there is a school that, that is kind of an ambassador for the Yanzi Finless Porpoise. So my daughter and my wife and I, we went there and we uh, talked to the uh, the students there and presentations on the Yanzi Finless Porpoise. How old is Jessica? She was, she was uh, ten. 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 So yeah. she went a couple of years ago and uh, took some pictures and met the students there. So a lot of education of people in uh, China, because not everybody knows about the Yanzi Finless Porpoise in China. So that's a great opportunity to get school children involved and then uh, a broader picture. And uh, it was a couple of years ago. So, so uh, education is, is really important that a princess from the UK, Princess Anne, she came to visit, and she spent about an hour or so. So uh, Jessica got to meet the princess, and uh, she was very interested in uh, the conservation efforts and the porpoise and what we're doing. So nice to have uh, advocacy like this. Uh, there's also, there's been uh, Olympians that have attended. There's a very famous actor, um, I won't pronounce his name correctly, Putan Shi. No idea, but I, I think I can Google. Yeah, Google Google Putenshi. He's very famous movie star. Oh, o, yeah, yeah, o, yeah. O, He's older. Older man. Yeah. He's older. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. yeah. Putenshi. Putenshi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I told you I'd mispronounce it. I don't. I don't pronounce any Chinese word I correct. Think, uh, I think. Uh, yeah, that's him. Yeah. So he is an ambassador for the porpoise, and he actually came. This was his first time there, and uh, my family and I got to uh, got to meet him, and he got to see the porpoise. I gave a talk at uh, Jessica's elementary school on the porpoise here, here, here in, uh, here in, uh, on Alaska. And I also got the opportunity, um, um, it, to talk to people at, um, a gateway technical. So we did a joint project with, um, bacteria. So in China, they talked about sequencing the genome. They sequenced the genome of the bacterium and then using the database, the Patrick database here in America, and it's really available too in China, but I did the project here with a Gateway student, learned about the porpoise, made a presentation about the work that, uh, that we did uh, um, in, in America and in China. So public education, I think, is really uh, a big, big uh, key to this, and the more the public becomes interested, I think the more, the more things will be done. It's amazing to see, like, this is actually what we call the value of international cooperation, right? Uh, international collaboration. It's like some people in China collect the stuff 
and then they send they do some research they send it your way and within your process and you can actually get a sequence and get back to them and it's it's amazing like how many people got involved plus all the relationship you build towards the, uh, during this process so um it seems to me not only you do research on stuff you love you also got personally involved on the non-research side it's almost like a whole package yes yes <laughs> it's like a lot of people do research but they don't get involved in what's after the research uh, or what's before how do you, how does that change your personal perspective on research or your life in general because I feel like that must have some impact maybe yeah yeah it, it, it does I think if you really like something then you're going to be more passionate about it and you're going to um, enjoy it more and more so I think uh, for me just the idea of the public awareness and how can we take and talk to the group about and I'm very willing to give talks and encourage them to give talks and they do give talks to elementary students school students and all the way up to government officials to make people aware of the Yanzi Finless porpoise the population decline of the porpoise so there, there's still time that's the good news with the porpoise there's still time so there is the vaquita off the coast of California that it, it's it's there's only about 30 of them left so unfortunately time is running out and maybe it won't be possible to save that but if we act and if we act in a, a responsible reasonable manner then this species can be repopulated it can be saved it can not go extinct so i think just just the role in uh, education and public awareness is an advocacy is, is is what i like to do it's interesting to see with the economics going on, all the bigger pictures, but people are still paying attention to very special things. Um, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Like, what if some people just ask you, why bother? Like, why bother with all the dying species with so much resource? What will be your response? Well, my response is that every, every species has, has value. So there's value there. The Yanzi finless porpoise is an indicator species. So it's at the top of the food chain. So in the Yanzi River, if the top species is doing really, really well, then you can assume everybody else is doing really, really well. But if the top species is struggling, which the Yanzi finless porpoise is, then so is probably every other species. So it's an indicator that there's more problems than just with the the Yanzi finless porpoise. So the Yanzi finless porpoise doesn't just live by itself. It lives in an ecosystem. So it needs clean water. It needs water. It needs a food source. Well, that, which is mostly carp, but that carp needs a food source, etc. So if your ecosystem is not doing well, then, and it reaches all of the top, the top, uh, a level that that tells you that your entire ecosystem is is going to be uh, in a lot of trouble. So it's it's an indicator of more serious problems. So it's a signal the system is sending you to say pay attention. That's right. Is it fair also fair for me to say if you can fix this, maybe you fix everybody below that? That's right. So if you fix that, then you're going to take and you're going to because there it's an ecosystem it's like a food chain a food web 
different species depend on each other. So if you fix that, you're going to have a healthy, diverse ecosystem, which is beneficial for the uh, aquatic, uh, aquatic environment. That's very convincing to me, like at least to me. Like I think, so you're not just seeing one species or not, like just out of empathy or anything. It's actually, it's, it's, it's the first step to dive into some deeper problem. And you can only know more until you start the first step, and then you figure out, okay, one thing leads to another. Now I know where the root cause is, and then start doing something about it. Interesting. So, um, do you think the idea you talk about was really interesting? That is, uh, put some species to a reserve, do whatever you need to do, and do the study at the same time. Because once they're gone, you won't be able to do the study anymore to figure out the cause. Do you think this thing is replicable? Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it, you there is a number of different. Uh, reserves where they're taking and they're uh, they're putting the Yanzi finless porpoise in that particular uh, reserve so yes there's there isn't just a Tiana Joe reserve there's uh, but uh, what about like uh, two other species like who are facing the threat of extinction I, th I think that there to to some extent yes that this excite to conservation um, is you're able to replicate it but an animal such as the vaquita, it's it has not been successful because have they done that? they've tried, but it's a very shy species and it just doesn't do well. So for some animals, it's going to be you're going to take and you're going to be able to to replicate that. But for uh, other species, you need to start sooner and uh, fix the problems. Um, in situ, so in the area where they're living. So sometimes excitu, okay, it works if in, if 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 in the area is not going to work. But ideally, you want to fix the problem in the area where they are living because that's where they're living. So for some animals it is, but for others not. And maybe we should also consider the symbiotic relations between different species. Sometimes you just move one, you didn't realize. There are so many more you need to actually start thinking. That's right, yes. And there, there's also, there's a, a very uh, big um, aquatic, um, it, it's called, and I'll mispronounce it again, um, it's in Zhuhai, it's called Chaolong. Chaolong, maybe? Yeah, you, okay. yeah, you went, Mal will pronounce it correctly for you. <laughs> and it, it, has, it has the world's largest aquarium. And there's whale sharks in that aquarium. Wow. So, so... Um, <laughs> Yeah, when you're in China, you know, you can take uh, take your family. Uh, I never realized how big that thing is until my friend sent a picture. Actually, she was in Hawaii and swimming with that thing. Yeah. And, and then I see, okay, yeah, we are side by side. I know how big that thing yeah. is. It's yeah, yeah. It, it's the world's largest aquarium. And there's talk about putting the porpoise in Chalon, in an aquarium there, because it's, you know, it's huge. So, again, that it could be an environment where the porpoise can thrive and people can learn about the porpoise and and be, become aware of that. So that's another approach, putting it in uh, in a, a commercial aquarium like that. What's your opinion on the currents? Like, should we even be doing that, or zoos in general? I, I think um, I think zoos uh, are good as long as they treat the animals really, really well. So such things as the San Diego Zoo. There was a person, Chuck, that came and talked about the zoos and aquariums at the Institute in China. So he's from the San Diego uh, Aquarium, um, etc. 
I, I think it gives you a, an opportunity to uh, study the animal, to learn about the animal in ways that you would not, uh, come up with strategies to reintroduce the animal back into the wild if the animal can be reintroduced. So um, such things as Ocean Park, uh, it's San Diego, it, they're very clean, they're very good, Chalon, which I'm talking to you about, it's very nice. So I think for the animals, um, it does have uh, it, it does have benefit. So I think we're hitting the, uh, the time mark here, but I'm, I want to close with a philosophical question. Um, what's your vision within the next 100 years is the relationship between human and other species? I, I think that um, I think it's going to I think it's getting better and better. Uh, certainly there are problems, but uh, public awareness is growing with such things as podcasts and internet and television. With new technology, we can take and we can we need to produce. We need to have industries, etc., for our daily lives. But we can produce in such a way that there's less pollution and there's less impact on animal species. So I think with uh, growing public awareness, with good public policies, with uh, new technologies and future technologies, that we can get along with the animal species very well and um, let them be animals, don't infringe on them, and at the same time, we don't lose our, um, our quality of life. So I, I, I think it's I, I think with the right steps and the right legislation, it, it can be a very bright future. Do you think it's a win-win? It can be a win-win situation, or we need to sacrifice a certain quality of our life in order for that to happen. I, I don't think that honestly people are going to sacrifice. And if you ask <laughs> them to, I think it has to be a win-win. Uh, it has to be okay. a win-win. I, I just don't think people are going to to say. Yeah, I'm going to give something. They're, they're not going to give anything up. So I think it has to be uh, a win-win. And I think that uh, it, it can be. It can be Do a win-win. Do you have a success example, successful example of win-win situation, even just for one species in a very small area? Um, there's the peregrine falcon that was almost extinct, and that has um, come back and uh, repopulated very nicely. There's, uh, there's a bald eagle, the eggshells, DDT, we no longer use that. That's come back and that is uh, repopulated very nicely. I think the steps that we're doing with uh, the Yanzi finless porpoise, uh, we're not quite to repopulating, but I think we're, we're certainly on the right direction. And, uh, and uh, I, I, think the future, I think the future is bright. Yeah, mathematically. You're not increasing, but at least you hit the local. Yeah, we level. hit the we, we hit that and, and <laughs> make we it stable and then make, make it stable. We 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 start it soon enough that you know that, that there is there is time and we've got some things in place. Keep the things in place and uh, work on the uh, excitu part of it and uh, come up with strategies there. I think that uh, that it's 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 going to be possible. Cool. Thank you so much All for right. your talk today. Thank that you. That was really educational for me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.